way at the AGC West Canada Conference, uh, and it was fantastic. It was a really, really good weekend. In fact, this is the first time in quite a number of years now that Shayla was able to attend the conference with me because Smong is now old enough that that's more doable, and it just so happened that the home church of that conference was where Shayla's parents go to church, so they got put on babysitting duty for the weekend a little bit. And Shayla and I got to kind of participate together and sit under some fantastic teaching from Steve Jantz, who is uh, the executive director of the Miller College of the Bible Sunnybrae campus. So they live right by Tarchuk's cabin uh, out there. I haven't actually been to that cabin. I was supposed to, but that's a different story for another time. Um, But the conference was just really, really, really good. Uh, The sessions were phenomenal, really challenged with a lot of Stuff that we know, uh, in fact, Shayla mentioned that we were sitting there and Steve was preaching through John 17, which is the high priestly prayer. And it's a very common passage, one that we've read lots. And, and she looked over at me and, and made a comment, something to the, long, the lines of, it's like I've never read this chapter before. Because it was just so much insight that Steve pulled out of there and things that we hadn't considered. Uh, and then we had some breakout uh, sessions or, or workshops, I guess you could call them. And one of those workshops really sat with me, and I shared a little bit with board meeting uh, about that. And in fact, our board, this is a really exciting thing, our whole board is going to gather together the second weekend of August uh, away from here for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and plan and strategize with moving forward as a church. And and we're going to talk a lot about this workshop that I had, which was this, the unintended consequences of technology, especially in the context of the local church. We've used technology, especially during COVID, for a lot of reasons and a lot of good reasons. But we haven't asked all the questions that maybe we should have, and there have been some unintended consequences of that that we want to wrestle through and, and ask hard questions and figure out, should we be doing things a little bit differently and, and just realizing that we live, we live in an age that's very, very consumer-driven. And we can stare at a screen and we can find anything we need, and if we don't like it, what do we do? turn it off. And sometimes we need to have things that we don't like and things that maybe we disagree with to challenge us rather than just turn it off and just surround ourselves with things that we already agree with. We need to be challenged. We need to be pushed. And and so we're going to talk about a lot of that kind of stuff. And and as we finish Daniel uh, this morning, I'm going to prime the pump for what's coming in the next couple of weeks. For this morning, we're going to finish Daniel. And you probably, if you've been any part of this series. We started Daniel in January, and we got all the way to chapter 10 here now, and we're going to go through chapters 10, 11, and 12 all in one go. And that's very unlike me. But the challenge that was presented to me is that chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. And I didn't know how to break that up. I didn't know how to separate it without it becoming this jumping ahead too far or just repeating the same thing for the next two or three Sundays. And as Shayla and I were having a conversation driving home from Saskatoon about conference and, and some of these questions on our minds and some of the workshops that we had taken, I was really impressed, uh, God really impressed upon my heart a new direction that we need to take in the sermon series leading into the summer. And again, I'll talk about it that at the end. But so I'm excited to get there. And so we're going to read through uh, not this entire text because it's simply too long, but we are going to start at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, so you can open there, and we'll read in just a minute. But let me just remind you of where we've been, 
why it has relevance to our lives. And as we finish this, because it's in some ways this is more of the same of what we've been talking about, but as we finish it, I want to remind us of why reading a book like this and studying a book like this not only has relevance to our life, but is deeply important for our spiritual walk. So Daniel. Daniel and his friends uh, were conquered in Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire in 605. And they got taken, this is 605 BC, let me clarify that. They were taken off into Babylon, and their identity was trying to be stripped away. Uh, In the first few chapters, what we read about is Daniel and his friends, and and, uh, presumably many others, but those four specifically, refused to give in to the Babylonian culture and say, no, I'm, I'm going to follow the one true God, no matter what it costs. And, and we read that it actually ultimately is going to cost them their life in, in several sections with uh, the fiery furnace or with the lion's den. But they refuse to give in and they say, I will follow the one true God no matter what. But on the same token, Jeremiah prophesied and told them that when they go, when they are conquered and they live there, when they're exiles in a foreign land, to live there, to build houses, to stay there, to seek the welfare of the people that have put you in captivity. That's a big challenge, isn't it? Go there and pray for those who have taken you out of your home and pray for their welfare. Why? Because God is at work even in the midst of exile. And so for us, that's so practical, not because we have been exiled, not because we've been taken out of the land that we are from, but what we are seeing in our government is a lot of our Christian values are under attack. A lot of things that we want to do and things that, that we've believed and lived for a long time are starting to be taken away for us or, or conditions are being attached to them. Something as simple as we very well could in the next few years as churches across Canada lose charitable status if we're not willing to say we will adhere to this and this and this. And so what does that mean for us? What are the implications to that? How are we going to live faithful in a time of exile similar to what Daniel was facing, at least theoretically similar. So it's so relevant and so practical uh, for us. And then we moved into the section on dreams, uh, what God is doing. And ultimately, this is the point of the book of Daniel. And this is why it's important for us too, is God is sovereign. He is in control. And that's no less true today than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 1,000 years ago. When we might look back on our life and think, man, at that point, things were smooth and good, and I was healthy, and, and I had everything that I needed, and now I'm in crisis and confusion and hurt, and, and we can cry out and say, God, what are you doing? And the book of Daniel reminds us that God is still in control, that he has purpose amidst your pain and your hurt and your struggle. And that even when externally we look around and we go, it doesn't look like God's in control, we can say, God, I trust you, and I will actively follow after you no matter what happens in this world. Remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said is when they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, our God is able to save us, but even if he won't, even if he won't, we're not going to serve him. And so the same message needs to be told to us. Will we stand firm on the word of God? Will we stand firm on what is true and what God has revealed to us in the scriptures as this is truth and here's where I lay all my cards. This is where I stand. This is one of the reasons that I am so proud to be part of the AGC. That's the group of churches that we belong to and why conference is one of the best weekends to go to. In Canada, most 
most conferences, generally speaking, are moving away from the authority, the inerrancy, and the relevance of the Word of God. And the AGC stands firm there saying, we will not move. This is where we stand. And I'm so proud to be part of a group of churches like that. So this is where we end up. Now in chapter 10, looking at the last of the vision, uh, of these visions that Daniel has, some of the confusion. Again, let me clarify. We have looked at some of the implications of end times, right? Is, is Daniel is written in their context for them, for what's coming, but also is written for us and that we would understand what's coming. Not the dates, not, not the times of, oh, I can tell you when Jesus is going to come back, or I can tell you, you know, which empire is going to be the leading empire in the world at that given point. None of that is given to us specifically, but is patterned to show us that essentially the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. There are times of revival in certain nations, in certain parts of the world, but generally speaking, governments are going to get more oppressive. And we see and read that when Jesus' own disciples are being persecuted and killed and Peter, who gets crucified upside down, uh, he writes to the people in 1 Peter, submit to the government even amidst all the challenges. Be respectful of those who disagree with you. It's no different than what Jeremiah told Daniel. Seek the welfare of those who will exile you. And so this is relevant to us just as much, but it's not in the sense of trying to figure out exactly what that end day of the world is. We don't know. And so we shouldn't try to make that the main point when that's not what the text is teaching us. All right, let's read this last vision together. We're going to start at verse 1, and we'll, we'll stop eventually. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a fine belt, sorry, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And I heard the sound, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And he came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face 
toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, sorry, of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius to meet, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. We'll stop there, and, and that's kind of a bizarre chapter, to say the least. But there's two things here that I want to point out. Is the first is that this should be very familiar already. We've seen this in chapters 2, 7, 8, 9. It's essentially the same visions. Little few details added or, or uh, focused on, but essentially the same thing is happening. Daniel was promised all the way back in the original vision that was for Nebuchadnezzar is that one is coming who will destroy the authority and the dominion of rule on this earth. Essentially, he was promising this. No matter how difficult it gets, and he promises it's going to get difficult, there's going to be persecution, kingdoms will rise and refuse to submit themselves under the lordship of the God, the one true God, and that they will rule of their own volition, they will redefine what is right and wrong, and they will actually seek to be worshipped themselves. God promises Daniel in these visions that one is coming, and that one who comes is Jesus. Jesus comes and he lives on the earth and he lives this perfect life, uh, ultimately going to the cross to die for our sins that we might be forgiven, rises again, and then ascends into heaven. And, and the Jews kind of went, that's not what I expected. And so when Jesus actually died on the cross for our sins, many of the Jewish nation refused to surrender to that. And, and Nick talked about some of this last week. So I don't want to dwell too much on that. But the point being is that God was promising Daniel, I am going to deal with sin. I am going to deal with death and the dominion and the authority that it has over you. I'm going to deal with the sin nature, essentially, that is within you. And so Paul talks lots about this in the New Testament, that now we are what? A new creation. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given a new nature. And, and unfortunately, we have the old nature and this new nature that, that fight. Sometimes we give in to that old nature and we do what's wrong. We hurt other people or we choose selfish means or motives. But we also no longer have to give in to those things because we have a new nature, the Holy Spirit. 
who empowers us to do what's right, to do what's just, to treat others the way that God has called us to treat them and to love others the way that God loves them. And so these visions are promising that there will be a day when those things happen. But now for us, there's also the promise of that we know Christ is going to come again one day. And so the hurt and the pain and the struggles and the difficulties and, and the temptations and all these things that we face right now, they're temporary because Christ is coming again. And so what that should do for you and I is that should help us to look beyond the circumstances of this world and remember that we still have hope that nobody can take away is when we turn on the news and we see wars and fighting and, and needless death and we see any and everything you could possibly imagine that we can look at and go, why, would this, why is this happening? We can remind ourselves that God is on his throne, the same that he was back then, the same that he is now, and that one day Christ will come again, and when Christ will come, we won't have this pain and this hurt. We're good to go be with him for eternity. And so what the Bible is trying to do all from the beginning of the pages to the end of it is to say, Christian, look past your circumstances and look to the truth of Jesus. Don't allow the challenges that you're facing become the only thing in this world that you define everything based on, but define it based on God and who he is. And then the other thing that that does for us is it reminds us that when we walk out of our door every day, we walk into a spiritually hostile world. Satan is actively trying to cause us to fall. And if we forget that, if we don't prepare ourselves for that, Paul talks about the armor of God, preparing yourself for battle, that every day as you get up, that you prepare yourself for the fight that's in front of you. It's so very important for all of us. And I think it's easy to forget. It's easy to, you know, you've hit snooze 17 times and then all of a sudden you're late and you get dressed and you run out and you head off to work and you've forgotten to even center yourselves on why, why do I exist? Why as a Christian am I here? What purpose do I have in my workplace or with my coworkers or with the customers that I'm dealing with or the peers that I'm around? God has given you purpose and meaning in all of that. But how easy it is for us to forget. And so we're being reminded as we read through Daniel to look beyond our circumstances that no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, God's still in control. Put your trust and your faith and your hope there. And we need that reminder, I think, often because, well, because life, as Ernie mentioned, sometimes is very turbulent. And sometimes it feels overwhelming and we go, God, why would you allow? How could you do? What's going on? When what we're being called to do is have the faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have where we say, God is able to get us out of this situation. But even if he doesn't, even if his way looks very different than I expect, I will submit to him and I will follow after him. Here in chapter 10 and 11, you see a little bit of kind of spiritual warfare that exists on a totally different plane than we understand. An angel comes to talk to Daniel, and he says he was actually hindered by the prince of Persia, and that Michael the archangel had to come and, and to fight so that he could be free to go and to speak to Daniel. And I, I don't have any idea how to interpret any of that, except to say this, is that life is very messy, and that God is far more actively involved in every moment of every day than we possibly realize. 
There is a fight for your soul. There is a fight for your life. And God is unwilling to let you fight that on your own. He is actively involved. Praise the Lord for that. And so while we see these visions, while we see all these bizarre things kind of happening here in Daniel, there's moments where it says Daniel sees and he, and he hears, but he doesn't understand and he doesn't know what's happening or, or, or why it's happening. Again, I think, is that not relevant for you and I today? How many times I've heard over the last number of, of months or weeks, I should say now, is, is why the war in the Ukraine? Why is this happening? I don't have answers for that. I, I don't know why it's happening, but what I do know is that as we read through texts like this, we're being reminded the whys are not what we should be focusing on. What we should be focusing on is even amidst all of this, God has purpose in it. And so what that means for, for you and me is that the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the confusion, the uncertainty, all of those things that you're facing right now is not happening to you without God actively involved. He's trying to say, I want to use these situations in you that you would grow more mature so that you would grow uh, to trust me more. It's so simple and yet so difficult. If we want to trust God more, what do we have to do? Go through hard stuff, don't we? If we want to trust, and those of you who are married, you know this to be true, is when you first start dating, everything's great, and you, know, you have this kind of infatuation for one another, and everything's good, and then you get married, everything's wonderful, and then all of a sudden there's, oh, are you really like this? Oh, am I really like this? We have things that kind of annoy each other. Just ask Shayla. I never stop singing or humming at home, and it drives her nuts. And I don't even notice I'm doing it. And I'm so thankful she said I do 12 years ago and still is here. This is just the reality. But, but the point being is that as we grow in that, we learn, man, I, I love you. And so we're going to go through some hard stuff. We're going to go through some difficulties, but we're going to commit to getting through them into the other side because of our love for one another. If it was just always easy all the time, we wouldn't grow. Our love would be the same that it was on day one, which would be just infatuation. And so it's so important that we say, God, I want to follow you. Would you take me where you want me to go, and would you lead me, and would you be at work in my life? And that's the most terrifying and best prayer you could pray. Because God says, I'm going to teach you what it means to trust me. When Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content, what's the secret of being content? Having everything ripped apart from you so that you have nothing to begin with and realizing that the only thing you need is actually God. And then everything that you do have, you see as gifts and God's grace and his goodness. We live in a time of... Uh, well, let's say the very opposite of that is we live in a time of entitlement where we think we deserve everything that we have. And so when it is taken away, then we go, God, why would you do this? Ryan, I'm going to pick on Ryan just a moment. Sorry, Ryan. Ryan uh, showed up a couple of weeks ago now. He's really excited about putting a new light pack on his motorbike. And, uh, and he comes in the day after doing that, and uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly why, but he was here to cook. And, and he told me, well, I installed it incorrectly or, or something, it started a fire and wrecked everything. And he was understandably 
not real happy about that. And so, at another side note, he said he came here to get his head right. I thought that was pretty cool. Get focused on what really matters. And then in the coming days after that, we had some conversations, and he continually, he was frustrated for sure, but was this, it, it's a motorcycle. It's just a motorcycle. And you probably had to say that to yourself several times. And we have to say those things to ourselves all the time too, especially in our culture where we think we deserve everything we have. But the truth of the matter is I deserve nothing, nothing good anyway. And when I remind myself of that, then everything that good that does come to me, I see as what it actually is, a gracious gift of a father who loves me. And I promise you, when we view it that way, we'll view everything that we have with way more gratitude, with way more joy than if we think I deserve everything that I have. Paul writes some familiar verses to us in Romans 3. They'll be up here on the screen. But I just want to read these. You know a few of them probably by heart from kind of the, the Romans road, we call it, or verses that you memorized in Sunday school. But I want us to see this in this way. This is uh, Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the, par- and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why was this done? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be justified, sorry, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's literally telling Daniel, and we we talked about this in chapter 8, At the end of those seven years that Jeremiah prophesied, some would return to Jerusalem. But sin wasn't yet dealt with. Their hearts weren't fixed. You read about this in the prophets, this imagery of of man needing a new heart because our hearts are, are stone. They're hard. They don't listen to what God is trying to show us and teach us. And we need a new heart of flesh. And ultimately, all of these things come true in the life of Jesus That Jesus dies on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of sins and he rises again so that we can conquer death so that his spirit can come into us and our hearts can be softened and we can have a new heart of flesh. So you might ask, why why do all these visions and, and why do all these things really matter? Well, I think they matter because when we look back at chapter 7 specifically in the vision there, and then we look forward to when Jesus is about to be executed and quoting Daniel 7 and saying, I am the Son of Man and I am here. And he actually says, I will be raised up in the clouds in glory back to the Father. Already in Daniel, we're reading that there's going to be one who comes who can forgive sin and he's going to be lifted up in the clouds back to the heavens to be with the Father. Could it be any more clear than when Jesus dies and rises again? 
This means that we can then trust the Bible. We can trust that what God has said will happen. And so that means that we can trust that even though some of these persecutions and difficulties are coming and are 100% guaranteed to happen to the church, that we also know that God is with us in the midst of that. So we don't have to doubt. We don't have to fear because we know that he is just as present today as he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or with Daniel. And while the outcome of our situations might not always mirror the same as what we see, is that God is actively involved. And so when we get to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21.4, we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither they'll show... Sorry, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When we read a verse like that, we can be assured one day Christ triumphs over everything. I said it in chapter 8 a whole bunch of times this way, is ultimately God wins. And we can put our, um, we know that's true. We can stand on that promise no matter what happens. Then at the end, if you flip to chapter 12, because I just don't want to miss this last little bit as well. The angel says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. And get this, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the stars above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Then he says this too to Daniel. But to you, Daniel, shut up these words. Seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel cries out in a couple of verses later, how, how long is this going to happen? And essentially what God says is, that's not for you to know, Daniel. And we've talked about this, the disciples in Acts 1 say to Jesus after he comes back, after he's risen from the dead, and he comes back and, and they say, is, is now the time? Are you now going to rule? Are you now going to free us from Roman oppression? And, and Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, he's preparing us that no, it's not yet. And, and frankly, you don't need to know when. But here's what you do need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So literally what Jesus has said, and this applies 100% to you in your situation where you live right now, is the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to be God's witness and to do miraculous things in the lives of other people. Now that might mean a miracle the way that we usually use that word miracle. I don't know. What it does mean is that you're going to have impact and influence for the kingdom of God because the Holy Spirit is within you so that you can declare the truth of the gospel to the nations. That's what we're called to do. All of us. Are we supposed to know when? No. Are we supposed to know exactly how? No. But are we supposed to know why? Yes, so that God would receive glory and honor. So that, according to 1 Peter, according to 1 Timothy, that ultimately many would be brought into the kingdom. That's your role as a Christian. God has given you talents and abilities and unique things, absolutely, and you should use those. 
But don't forget, and this is, this is where we're headed now. After we finish Daniel, this is where we're headed over the next few weeks. I've titled the next series uh, es- uh, Ecclesiology and Mission. What ecclesiology simply means is this, is why does the church exist? What are we here for? Again, we live in a culture that's very consumeristic, and church sometimes can feel that way. I come to church so that I get fed. But that's a very small picture of what church is supposed to be according to the New Testament. And I probably haven't done a good enough job of talking about that. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to try and re-look at what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does the Great Commission practically mean in my life every day moving forward? If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to know your purpose in life, I'll just give it to you very simply. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Spirit and teach them to obey everything that God has commanded. That's it. That's your purpose. Now, there's all kinds of things that we'll get into about our vocation and how we do that. And and this is why I want to pump again June 18th, the Gospel Symposium, because the whole point of it is redefine or or reimagine your work based on the Gospel. That doesn't mean that I'm trying or, or that our ministerial or, or Pastor Craig at the Cairn who's overseeing this event, our goal is not to make everyone evangelists in the traditional sense. Our goal is to make everyone a kingdom worker so that no matter what your career is, no matter what your vocation is, you view it under the lens of I need to do this well for the glory of God and I have purpose and meaning in the people that I interact with for the kingdom. It's not about money. It's not about possessions. It's not about fame. It's about the kingdom. So that's what ecclesiology is all about, and that's what we're going to study. What, what is our mission? Why do we exist? What is our hope? What is our purpose? So I want to end with this verse, and I specifically told Becca I wouldn't use this verse, so she won't have it up there. I apologize. This is in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and I shared this with our, our board on Wednesday. These, again, are familiar verses, but I just want to point out one thing. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the endurance, sorry, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This image is so practical for all of us. When we wake up, we realize we're running the race. What's the race for? That others might know who Christ is. That's the race. And so what do we need to deal with to do that effectively? He says two things. One is obvious. You've got to deal with the sin in your life that, that clings so closely and distracts you from your mission and your purpose. We know that. But it also says this, lay aside every weight. And so those weights, they might be really good things. But anything that takes our focus off of Christ, even if it's a good thing, becomes a bad thing. And so I don't know what that might be for you. I know what it is for me. I know what things can really distract me, things that I can get really excited about. This is, and I say this joking all the time, and I said this probably to some of you uh, in the midst of these playoffs because the Leafs were, you know, lost in round one yet again. I don't care anymore. And I mean that genuinely speaking. I still like watching hockey. I still want to go and watch, you know, the game tonight. But I no longer have an emotional vested interest in there because I know that sports and and that competitive side of me can take my focus off of Jesus 
And if the Leafs lose, not if, when the Leafs lose in the first round next year, sorry, that was too soon. If they lose and I get angry and I start treating people poorly, if they lose and I don't talk to my wife or my son for that next day because I'm so angry about that, then that is something that is hindering my walk with Christ. And it needs to go. And I probably knew that years ago before I finally made that decision last year. And it's not easy. But we need to consider, what are the weights? What are the things that hinder us from our ecclesiology and our mission and our purpose? Because if you're a Christian, your job is just a part of who you are to accomplish your great mission. Exalt Christ, make him known. We say it this way in our home, and you've read this in the Bible and you've heard it many times, is you simply have to do this, is love God and love people. Everything else is a distraction. That doesn't mean we can't do anything else. It doesn't mean you can't watch hockey. It's okay, Jason. You can watch the Flames today. That's okay. But it does mean we need to make sure, how much space does this occupy in my heart? Is it distracting me from who Jesus is? Ultimately, that's what we're reading in Daniel because this is the reality. Our distractions are very first world problems compared to what Daniel was facing, living in exile. But the same principle is true. Daniel, are you going to let living in exile and having everything taken from you, are you going to let that harden your heart and have you turn away from the one true God? Or is that going to cause you to trust in him more because only in him will you find any hope? Same is true of us now. Are you going to find your purpose and your meaning in your job, in your bank account, in your possessions? Are you going to find your purpose and your meaning in your identity in Christ? That's where it ultimately boils down. That's why we're going to spend the next weeks. I don't know how long this is going to be, and that's a dangerous thing. But we're going to focus here and going, what does the church exist for? What do I exist for as a Christian? And how can I put Jesus as the primary focus in my life? Let's pray. God, thank you for this book, and, and there's so much in it that's difficult to understand, and we can get lost in some of the details of trying to understand things which I think are intentionally a little bit vague things that are showing us patterns of things to come, not necessarily the specific details of. And so God, as we read books like this, would we be reminded, would your Holy Spirit be active in our minds and our brains that we would hear you to know that we can trust you in today's world, that you are still in control, that you are still sovereign, that you have purpose and meaning in everything that we're facing today, that you are at work, in my life, and in the life of each one here. And God, would you reorient us to focus on the things that matter? Would you help us to push aside the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us? And would we run with perseverance the race that's marked for us? Would our focus be on Jesus? So God, in these next coming weeks, I pray that you would make clear to each one of us what you have called us for and what you have called us to. God, I'm so thankful for all that you've done in my life, for the leading and the direction that you've had. And, and I pray that in each one of us today that we would look forward with hope and excitement asking, what are you doing in my life for the kingdom? That we would step out in faith and that we would do those things. 
God, when we turn on the news or when we see the events that are happening in the world, may that only draw us closer with you and, uh, and further and deeper into prayer. May we not allow the circumstances that we face around us. May we not allow the entitlement that we can so easily feel creep into our mind. May we see everything the way it is, that everything you have given us is a gracious gift. And that if you take something from us, it's, I guess, because we don't need it. Help us to trust you this week with whatever comes our way. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. Amen. There are snacks for you over at the, the side table if you'd like to stay and visit and have coffee. We'd love to connect with you and, and spend some time together. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again next time.